I know of a place where it is written that they were loving when they made us. They had shaped us like them and carved us in their image. With all their sorrows, but their joys as well. We are them in a way, and whatever is ours is also theirs. So when whichever God created me sees himself in the mirror and thus sees a piece of me, it must be with slightly small ears and a thick head of hair, a ski jump nose between two troubled eyes and a furrow between two brown eyebrows. My God must also yearn for something. I wrote this poem in Norwegian quite a few years ago when I was still doing such nonsense. And it's not a particularly good poem, I would say. Um, but it was written maybe around the time of my peak academic anxiety. You know, realizing that I probably wasn't going to pursue a traditional academic career path. The place referred to in the beginning is the poem Wollespo, known to English readers as the prophecy of the seeress where the gods create the first man and the first woman in the deep mythological past. And this is the only mythological Old Norse text where the gods are described as having emotions of love for humanity. This crude and naive poem that I wrote probably reveals a few of my own subjective ideas about what some of these myths represent and how they relate to this oddly congenital sense of dissatisfaction and hunger that seems to permeate the universe. And it's not that it's good or bad, it's more like a symptom, a side effect of the architecture of the world. It's the impossibility of free lunch, a metaphor that can also be used to describe exchanges of energy and information, how one thing flows into another. Some energy is always expelled, everything just slowly spinning out of track with every turning of the cycle. We always take away a little bit more than we can return. Entropy ensures that we will never quite return to where we were in the previous rotation. There can be no perpetual motion in our universe. It's all too unsustainable. And we all have some excuse. I blame the gods, wherever or whatever they are, for setting that ball in motion. Of course, I don't really have any problem with that. That is, after all, the only reality that I know. And given that even this world is such a mystery to me, I struggle to understand what a different world could even look like. A world where free lunch is possible is not a world that this world gives me the tools to understand. Besides love, there is no clear motivation for why the gods would bring us into the world. But they clearly wanted us to look and behave like them, as if human civilization is some kind of simulation or sublevel of godly society. That happens to be the subject of Reinhard Werner Fassbinder's 1973 sci-fi masterpiece World on a Wire, or Welt am Dracht. A movie that absolutely blew me away when I first saw it a couple of months ago. I immediately understood that I wanted to appropriate some of its main topics into a discussion of Old Norse cosmology. And that might seem a little bit weird if you've ever seen the movie, because you're probably more likely to see World on a Wire referenced in the context of media theory or cybernetics and the postmodern philosophy of Jean Baudrillard and his concept of hyperreality, in which consciousness fails to distinguish between reality and simulations thereof. I realize that this topic might be a bit esoteric, but it 
seems to be a suitable interlude to my ongoing series on Valhalla, especially since it gives me the chance to stop and dwell on a few topics that I otherwise won't have the chance to address in those episodes. Obviously, there will be a lot of spoilers ahead. So, this is my Scandi-Futurist cross-examination of Reinhard Werner Fassbinder's World on a Wire and Old Norse Cosmology, here on the Brute Norse Podcast, where we walk backwards into the future. Ich weiß etwas, was du nicht weißt. On a Wire follows Fred Stiller, a programmer working for a cybernetic research unit on the cusp of a great and terrible discovery. They have already managed to create an extremely realistic computer simulation of human society called Simulacron 1. Simulacron 1 is a microcosm of the real world, and any process that happens in that program accurately predicts how things might actually happen in similar circumstances in the real world. Now that being said, it's very small, and only contains about 10,000 or so so-called identity units. That's basically virtual people. But though the people may be virtual, they all have jobs, relationships, and hobbies. The simulation provides them with a sense of free will. They respond to things as thinking, feeling beings, and seem to interact with each other just as they would, if they were, in fact, real-life human beings. And as with anybody who seems to live in the real world, these so-called identity units have no reason to doubt their humanity, or that the virtual dollhouse of their world is actually the real thing. Though it never really invokes the same mythological imagery that I do, I found that the movie harmonizes very well with some of the assumptions that I have been making in terms of the weird relationship between humanity and the gods. Some religions suggest that the world is an illusion, or somehow less true than some universal essence from which we are alienated because of our physical bodies. So is this the kind of world that the identity units in World on a Wire are living in? I think that the answer to that is no, though that might seem to be the case at first glance. In transcendent religions, where the world we live in is seen as false, our lifeline to the exo-universal reality relies either on faith in God or some devotional principle that will set us free. But there's no practical benefit, no divine reward, no salvation to knowledge of the outside dimension to the identity units of Simulacron 1. They are entirely oblivious about the services they provide to their creators. On the other hand, the pagan proposal that the gods exist does not rely on faith but presumes that the gods are somehow a result of the world's reality, and therefore the place in which the gods dwell must also be on some natural plane, even if it is a natural plane that we cannot fully understand or access. The researchers are kind of like gods. They live in a separate world, an apparently truer, more direct form of reality, from which they gaze down upon their playground of creation. And then, whenever they so fancy, 
descend into digital bodies and walk the simulated Earth, blending in seamlessly like Odinic wanderers. But while the real world of the coders and analysts appears to exist separately from the simulation, this is not strictly true. After all, the simulation is encoded in the physical circuits of the supercomputer in the real world. The so-called fake simulation is actually not separate from reality at all. What we share with the identity units is the fact that if the gods exist, they must exist regardless of whether or not we know that they do. The tech gods relish in their creation. The illusion of a true human consciousness is so detailed that the identity units are even able to develop mental illnesses, which even the main protagonist celebrates at some point because that's the true testament of a realistic simulation. They monitor the simulation from the godlike sandbox of the computer lab. You feed the machine with some virtual scenarios and use the outcome to predict future events like an oracle, allowing analysts to create fantastic predictive cybernetic models for everything from political change to fluctuations in the real life stock market. Now with that vast amount of information just bouncing around the simulation, some things are bound to go under the radar. One day, the stability of the simulation is threatened when Identity Unit 7326, aka Christopher Nobody, commits suicide. This prompts the scientists to delete the unit, along with any trace that he ever existed within the program. To investigate, Stiller enters the simulation to interrogate the only unit whom those gods of cybernetic science had dubiously awarded full awareness of his own virtual existence which is to serve as a point of contact that allows them to communicate with the inside of Simulacron 1. The unit reveals to Stiller that nobody had somehow discovered the truth about the world he was living in and killed himself because he couldn't handle the burden of knowing the true nature of his digital existence. That particular sentiment is shared by that contact unit who begs Stiller to bring him back up into the real world. And later on, he actually finds a way to swap minds with one of the staff, allowing him to escape the simulation and enter reality, not only returning to the gods who made him, but elevating himself to form of godhood himself. The suicide of the research unit Mr. Nobody is also reflected by events at the facility. For example, in the suicide of the eccentric project manager at the very beginning of the movie. We're given the impression that this happens right at the edge of a great scientific revelation. But instead of a big reveal, we're treated to an exhausted rant about how we are all just nothing but reflections of the image that others have made of us. The self that we think we see in the mirror is nothing but a projection, he says, shortly before he bashes his head against the supercomputer. Another man vanishes in thin air in the middle of a conversation, and oddly, out of the recollection of anybody else. As if his entire identity had been deleted. It occurs to our hero that he is himself a centerpiece of an even greater experiment, and that Simulacron 1 is just an imitation of an imitation, a virtual reality within a virtual reality designed in a computer lab by some yet-to-be-revealed and even more advanced civilization that presumably looks down upon them, intrigued by how the simulation has created a little simulation of its own. Stiller must then attempt to escape the world that he mistook for reality, and in one sense, is his reality, and find an exit to the real world, the world of the gods. But who really knows how deep this Russian nesting doll of reality and hyper-reality goes? There's a scene where our hero, 
who by now has been branded a dangerous fugitive, tries to hide in the audience of a cabaret starring a Marlene Dietrich impersonator, complete with a musical performance of the multi-frontline World War II hit Lily Marlene. In this context, of course, the actress plays the role of an actress, performing the role of Dietrich, performing the role of some wartime femme fatale who gets executed by the singing soldiers of the German Wehrmacht. True to the cabaret style, when the officer attempts to blindfold her, the onion-layered virtual diva takes the blindfold right off and uses it to wipe the officer's cheeks. He doesn't quite respond, but moves stiffly like a puppet to her direction. Much like many of the other identity units in the scenes taking place inside of Simulacron 1. And then something intriguing happens. She adjusts his arm to use his officer's sword as a mirror to redo her lipstick, before she pulls a mourning veil over her face. A voice cries, and Marlena Dietrich is shot dead. The soldiers vacate the scene, unresponsive to the fact that the playback of Marlena Dietrich's singing continues even after the character's apparent death, which reveals that the fourth wall has been broken. And we see the performance no longer as a sincere depiction of a cabaret within a movie where the audience is supposed to suspend their disbelief, but a self-conscious performance that invites us to doubt what we are seeing. When the simulation of Marlene Dietrich directs every aesthetic movement of her own death, there are certain elements that are quite obvious. It lends dramatic tension and release to the cabaret, of course, and establishes her as a brave hero who will accept her fate just fine as long as certain conditions are met. But as an audience, we feel along with Stiller that there is something else present that we cannot fully understand. Invisible strings manipulating the puppet theater of our reality. The cabaret character seems aware about the virtuality of her world, but not only is it a virtual world, a scripted world, it is a fascist authoritarian world, one which has been predetermined by the scriptwriters and from which there is no exit. Well, no exit except for death. And so the character welcomes her exit, even though that very exit and her willingness to submit to its conditions is already part of the script. Only a virtual character's virtual death can take the femme fatale out of the virtual world that she is forced to inhabit. Yet it is also a scripted event. Nothing comes to pass that isn't already predicted, whether in the script of the movie, of the cabaret, or the cybernetic models that determine the reality of Simulacron 1. The gods can see in real time what appears to us to be future events. It is rather reminiscent of the god Odin's relationship to humanity and legendary heroes in particular, as he grooms young warriors into a lifestyle that will often railroad them down the path of violent and ironic death, after which some of them ascend to another apparently more direct level of ontological reality. A reality that humanity cannot fully understand, but describe in mythic narratives. By demanding control of the appropriate circumstances of her death, the Dietrich character mirrors the orchestration of death performed by the heroes of the Germanic legendary tradition. In poems and sagas, Northern Europe's ancient heroes exhibit a nonchalant, lax, and even proactive stance towards the impending end of their life. 
This is in fact a necessary device that completes the narrative character arc and fulfills the schematic prophecy that for a hero to truly be a hero, his life must be laid out with planned obsolescence. He is pre-programmed to die, not quite by pursuing death head-on, but by allowing death to conquer the moment, by cultivating a necessary context where death may be welcomed if and when opportunity arises. Since this sort of ancient capital H amoral hero is invariably a warrior, such circumstances come with a job description. Yet, for death to be appropriate, it must occur in the correct context, rather than the first immediate chance to die. And even better if the circumstances are entirely out of their control, and somehow determined and predicted by some beyond human entity. It must be scripted in a way into a constellation of circumstances where death provides the appropriate release and exit to the tension of the hero's life. And when this occurs, the legendary hero seems to have the foresight to know the appropriate death where they see it. Sometimes they respond eagerly, especially in certain Eddic poems where they die laughing, knowing that they will receive great honors in a world beyond our own, where the gods and heroes of old will greet them with wine, women and song. Sometimes this death is not very glamorous at all. For those of us, us mere mortals, who lack that insight to see when these worlds kind of intersect with each other, who don't really understand how these worlds work, we're left puzzled and distressed by the bodies of the fallen. What the character of Marlene Dietrich in the cabaret in the movie shares with the ancient warriors of Scandinavia was an emphasis on the importance of aesthetics as a tool to direct and somehow provide an answer to what might otherwise be seen as the unbearable reality of death. The movie also shares with Norse cosmology the assumption that reality is multifaceted and not necessarily so simple that its cosmology can be expressed on a map, whether two-dimensional or three-dimensional. A phone booth, for example, may be nothing but a private space for telecommunications in one moment in the movie, that is, and a portal to another dimension in the next. The intersections between our world and the world beyond are never necessarily in the same place twice. They open and close and move about, as if the lands themselves are neither here nor there, east of the sun and west of the moon, as the Norwegian folkloric expression goes, but wrap around each other to accommodate occasional travel when the cosmic winds allow for it, or for the influence of some superhuman power. This is, in one way, a common theme in Norse mythological texts, though it is mostly just implied but in a more explicit way, it is often depicted in the fantastic legendary sagas which describe the ancient past and were usually composed in the 13th century and onwards based on more ancient legendary material, presumably. These tend to describe alien worlds and anything but name with other possibilities and other races of beings that are not accessible to normal human experience. These semi-legendary locations are often described as being somewhere in a certain direction, say to the far east, or beyond some closer location that is itself shrouded in mystery and legend. It is similar to the notion of the Hulderlands and vanishing islands which I described in episode 13, and retains a lot of elements that were probably imported from Irish conceptions of the other world. Nonetheless, there are elements to this belief that seem to be indigenous to Scandinavian cosmological concepts, as argued by Eldar Heide in his article Contradictory Cosmology in Old Norse Myth and Religion, 
but still a system? Question mark. Traditionally, scholars have looked for internal consistency to determine otherworldly beliefs in pre-Christian Scandinavia. Heide turns that upside down and suggests the contrary, that the inconsistency of Norse cosmology might actually be the key to understanding it. I'm sure you've seen one of those illustrations of the Norse cosmos where there's a world tree in the middle and then a certain limited number of worlds attached to that tree, say nine worlds, surrounding a disc-shaped earth, for example. Now I want you to look up that image on the internet and print it out on paper if you have the possibility and then just rip it apart immediately after it comes out of the printer because this is the most simplified bullshit model of understanding how the Vikings view the world that I could possibly imagine. It simply does not reflect the complexity of our sources. Because it's not just that different sources gives contradictory information about the whereabouts of otherworldly locations, sometimes the sources seem to contradict themselves. But, as Hayden notes, this is a modern academic subtlety which hinges on our own understanding of the universe. Sometimes it seems as if Norse people thought of other worlds as separate bubbles of reality, complete with a different sun hanging in the sky, for example. These bubbles can intersect or touch each other to create a passageway, and yet, still, the same other world can sometimes also be reached by going in its apparent direction, and then this world seems to be within the same bubble as our own. Likewise, Simulacrum 1, in one sense, exists in a circuit board locked up in Stiller's workplace. But to the people who live there, it just appears to be a different world. It's not as if the identity units can simply walk out of the motherboard after all. Hades' model goes against a lot of the more traditional interpretations of Norse cosmology that you, the listener, are probably familiar with, in which the realm of the gods is either in the heavens or in the geographical center of the cosmos with all the worlds of the mythological races surrounding it, say, like concentric circles or whatnot. These tend to focus on the horizontal and vertical axis of the cosmos, so that some worlds are either above or under the Earth, or in some direction on the horizon. Heide, on the other hand, argues that the main significant cosmological directions are, at least logistically speaking, away from and back to the center. And the cosmic center changes according to circumstances. I noticed that this has some parallels to indigenous Sami beliefs, in which the dwelling is always the cosmic center, and the chaotic wilderness is moved along with it, according to the cycle of their nomadic lifestyle. The question is not exactly about, say, where the gods live, but identifying the points of space and time that facilitate entry and communication between the worlds. The main point, Heide argues, is that the other world is somewhere else. For an example of a movie depicting the more traditional, horizontal means of Norse hyperdimensional travel, we could look to Trolls 2, where the main characters are lured into the other world by a combination of magic and manipulation, represented in the movie by the seemingly quiet town of Nilbog. Much like the heroes of the legendary sagas, they realize only far too late that they have in fact wandered into the realm of the goblins. Grandpa! Nilbog! It's goblins spelled backwards! This is their kingdom! Oh my god! If we want, we can also tie this in with the singing soldiers who shoot Marlena Dietrich dead. 
I would argue that these aren't just devices, puppets to illustrate the movie's point about the illusory nature of our individuality. In their own limited little stage play of a world, maybe they also long for something beyond. Let's consider their marching song, Vesterwaldit, or the Song of the Vesterwald, a wooded mountain range along the right bank of the Rhine. The march itself takes the form of a relatively innocent folk song, though in later years somewhat tainted by its World War II popularity. It casts Westerwald as this Elysian plain of rustic beauty, authenticity, and vitalism. Oh, you beautiful Westerwald! Over your heights the wind whistles so cold, yet the smallest sunshine thrusts deep into the heart. Gretel and Hans both go dancing gladly on Sundays because dancing makes joy and the heart and the body laughs. Oh, beautiful Westerwald, and so on and so on. When the dancing is over, there is mostly fighting, and of the lad who is not pleased with that, it is said, he has no grit. Vesterwald is a place for lovers and fighters. And if I may say so, it is quite reminiscent of the semi-mythical Glassisvelir of the Norse legendary sagas. Translating as the Shimmering Plains, Glassisvelir is a shining green realm associated with another obscure location by the name of Udons Åker, or the Fields of the Undead. The legendary Hervara Saga describes this as a land where old age and disease are expelled from whoever goes there, and whose ruler is worshipped as a god. Gustav Neckel, an influential but somewhat outdated theorist on Valhalla, argued for a connection between Valhalla and a more ancient belief in those shimmering lands of the undying. Its denizens are not dead, Neckel argues, but human beings whom the gods have bumped up to a higher plane where they can become immortal. This even happens to Stiller as he comes into contact with Eva, a scientist from the world above who performs the role of Odinic psychopomp, guiding him to a pre-programmed fate where he is supposed to get shot dead in a police ambush which allows him to get zapped into the apparently real world. At which point the movie ends, apparently on a positive note, while us, the viewers, possibly weighed down with suspicion and existential dread, are forced to question everything we see around us. And on that note, I simply don't think I can go on anymore. With the episode, that is. Thank you for listening to the Brute Norse Podcast where we have walked backwards into the future, as we always do. And hey, did you know that there's a Brute Norse Patreon? Go on, check it out! Patrons get access to the cozy BN Discord community, have a permanent 20% discount on shirts in the Teespring store, and some of them even get handwritten postcards, temporary tattoos, embroidered patches, and other secret goodies. I just gotta remember to send the latest batch. I'm looking at a stack of letters right now. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there for those of you who are willing and able to join my Scandi Futurist cult. Brute Norris, with a Kool-Aid, is homebrewed on indigenous farmhouse yeast. As always, I'm your host, Erik Stolson. Uh, have a good night.